Welcome to the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast, where we help urologists and staff achieve peak economic and practice efficiency so there is time and energy to focus on patient care and a happy life. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-hosts, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. Welcome to episode 97 of the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-host, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. And today we're going to visit some questions that we got on our community or our forum. And we want to discuss those. We thought they were interesting, brought up some interesting points. So we want to answer those questions. So uh, let's let's get right to it. Um, we're going to do three different questions and we'll start with the first one that has a couple questions within it um so the question is from timothy and he says um it's regarding an independent historian so for pediatric visits i'm a little unclear what counts as independent historian i see the definition from cms states an individual for example parent guardian surrogate spouse witness who provides a history in addition to a history provided by the patient who is unable to provide a complete or reliable history? Um, for example, due to a developmental stage or dementia or psychosis, or because a confirmation, a confirmatory history is judged to be necessary. Does a parent providing a history count as an independent historian for a baby? I can see the argument for no. You know, for example, provides a history in addition to the patient's history, and the baby provi provides no history. But also, an argument for yes, the baby isn't able to provide a history due to the developmental stage. Curious on your thoughts on this. <clears throat> yeah, so, so Timothy, uh, first of all, let's make sure um, the, uh, the rules that you're quoting are from the AMA um, right now relative to this, the we haven't gotten any CMS interpretation across the board, but so, so we are AMA, and it's not a huge distinction. But want to make sure we got the right rulemaking body in place. And and but then secondly, um, yeah, I mean the the answer is yeah, the parent is an independent historian. Um, you know that this applies for um, people that can't give a history at all. Um, it is somebody else that you're having to deal with. It is something coordinating two different individuals. And as we mentioned in previous episodes, um, you know, the, the rules end up being kind of blocked. And even though the baby cannot give any history here, you're still dealing with two separate groups. And, and I think realistically, one of the reasons they were able to, to kind of let this go in this area, if we want to try and assign at least some logic here, is that, you know, the reality of that one data point um, or that, that, which is, you know, a category one data point, um, but does actually bump you to uh, a level three visit, um, <clears throat> isn't going to be the differentiator in, in a ton of cases um, across the board making the visit go. It's still going to be about what the problem is, you know, the risk for your treatment, those types of things. Data will be a contributor, um, but I don't see that bumping things around too much. But as it does, use it because 
they are and the parent is an independent historian according to the rules yeah, when we first uh, read that, you know, I was looking at that and I, I saw the argument for no, because you're not spending any more time, you know, with that particular patient than if the patient could talk for themselves. But uh, but but I understand why it's set up the way it is. Ray, thoughts? No, it's just as we've said before, you know, when it gets down to coding, you've got to just put your blinders on and read the rules. Don't apply your logic and don't overinterpret, particular when you're taken away from what you can do. The rules say you can count it, count it. All right. Okay, the second part of uh, the question was uh, regarding a newborn post hospitalization circumcision consult. Uh, trying to ter determine how this one is built, not talking about the routine circumcision that happens right after birth, because that's usually done by OB or pediatrics, but rather about the ones referred to pediatric urology because the parents wanted a circumcision, but the peds or the OB didn't think they should do it because of a concern for something like penile torsion. So for risk, uh, he says, I presume would be a level four, which is a minor procedure with risk factors. And the problem, um, he wasn't sure about that, said, I presume if something like penile torsion is noted on exam, this would be a level four problem, chronic but not a treatment goal. What if, it tur what if the exam turns out to be normal? Is it chronic, not a treatment goal because the parents slash patient desire circumcision? This seems to be the key question for whether this visit type would be a three or a four. And for data, perhaps irrelevant if the problem and risk are at fours, but perhaps a three with the independent historian or just a two for the review of outside records. Thanks for your help. Okay. What do you yeah, got Ray, there? You want, do you want Ray to go first on this one? Yep, let's have Ray go first. All right. Well, I would say that when you're talking about the problem, even though the patient may not have a torque or some other problem, they still have a redundant prep use and want a circumcision. So I think you can still count it as chronic, not at treatment goals. Well. I agree. It's uh, it's definitely fits the patients had it or gonna have it for a period of twelve months, um, you know, a year, and um, yeah, I mean, the treatment goal is there. Um, now the, the only thing that might I can see where the argument popped up in their head is, you know, this is a treatment goal established by the patient, not by the physician, um, which you know, if you flip it around on the other side. You've got the the fact that if you've got BPH and the doc says it's not at treatment goal, but the patient says, I'm fine getting up four times a night, um, the rules state that it's the physician's treatment goal, the clinician's treatment goal that matters. So um, I do think that you do want to have that documentation in there that talks about the necessity of the circumcision and why. Um, that would be an important move for the patients from a clinical perspective in order to put it at that treatment goal issue. 
but so otherwise, I agree with the slight nuance. Good point. You, All right. You should document it's not at your treatment goal either. Right. All right. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the next question. The next question is from Kelly. And uh, this is a question posed by their ASC. Um, I appealed the insurance denial and they upheld deni denial stating our review with medical records has determined that per published evidence-based coding literature, the following diagnosis codes are not compatible with the procedure code build. And that uh, they had the T19.1XXD and the 52310. They state the specific code combination listed above was denied based on published evidence-based coding literature. There's a more appropriate diagnosis code for the procedure build per medical record documentation, which states the removal of the ureteral stent, not a foreign body. Please submit the corrected claim. And the question is, what's what more appropriate diagnosis code is there? And, uh, you know, the history was of UPJ stone with hydronephrosis since resolved on one and ureteral stone also resolved on the other. Because the conditions were treated during surgery, the only reason the patient was coming back was in was for the removal of the ureteral stone. And we've always used the T19.1XXD uh, without issue for that. Other possibilities I'm finding here are the Z46.6 in counterfeiting for the adjustment of the urinary device or the T83.192D, other medical complications of indwelling ureteral stent subsequent encounter but they don't feel appropriate. Please, please advise. I guess the first thing we need to do is, uh, you know, identify what the 52310 and the, the T191, T19.1XXD are for those that uh, don't have them memorized. Yeah. So I'll give you, you can look up the, the T191XXD um, and read the exact on that one. But uh uh, we all, I think everybody knows that the uh, 52310 is the uh, cystoscopy is the removal of foreign body like a stent. Um, so um, that's, uh, you know, that's certainly the, you know, the right code for the cystoscopy with removal of the stent. So um, the, the, T1.1XXD uh, yeah. is the foreign body and bladder subsequent encounter. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's a lot of folks using the T191XXD. Um, there are a few folks that use the T83192D, um, which is the other mechanical complication of indwelling ureteral stent. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I don't think that the T83 is appropriate in this case unless it was encrusted or something was happening uh, with the stent that was there. I th the the T one nine one XXD is probably fine, but I but I I'd be willing to bet. I mean, first of all, I don't think that necessarily the insurance company is correct in what they're giving you. But um, I will offer you the other side of the coin is that for ICD ten coding, remember that during the active treatment phase, you can continue to use. The um, the initial do, uh, documented diagnosis. 
So in this particular case, Kelly, I think you could use stone or hydronephrosis because you are still within the continuity of care of that, um, even though the initial conditions have, re have resolved. So until you finish that treatment phase, which would include the stent removal, um, those codes are still valid. So from those circumstances, I would, I would look at keeping your T191XXD, but use it as a secondary diagnosis and use the reason that the stent was placed um, as the primary diagnosis because you still are in the treatment phase. Now, obviously, if you know that, that stent's been in there a long time, you've got a little bit more of an issue or somebody else put that in there, um, you know, that's, that's a little bit more of an issue that's there um, for that particular case. And for most payers, I'd still go with a T191XXD um, as a primary. So, but I'm also interested to see if anybody else is using a different code for that. I mean, in the end, it is a foreign body that's there. It was placed there uh, uh, intentionally, um, but nevertheless, it's a foreign body. Mark, what about using the T19.1XXA, which is the foreign body in the bladder initial encounter? Yeah, you could use, I mean, it. I can see why there's an argument there, and this is where you've got a couple of different issues in the fact that you place the stent in there, um, so it's hard to say that's an initial encounter. Um, so that's why D makes sense um, over an S for that last uh, setup. So um, that's that would be my issue is I, I, I don't necessarily think it's the A because you've actually seen the patient before with that particular issue because you put it there. All right, what about using the S, which is foreign body and bladder sequelae? And the uh, it's in that in the chapter of effects of foreign body entering through natural orifice. All of them are, of course. Yeah, so the S are, the S really is for a recurrence condition. So um, since you're not resolved, I don't think the S fits at all. Um, I think it would be, I mean, I really think the D is the right, the right indicator in the seventh position here. Very good. When, I got a question, when they, when they say that it's published per evidence-based coding literature, what, if you want to find out what their evidence-based coding literature is, where do you find that? Or what, what are they, is that just a general sweeping statement? I think you answered your question. Yes, it's a general sweeping statement. <laughs> I mean, this this is the common argument across the board. It's legalese and BS, and what they're saying, you know, is yeah, you don't you, you don't. And and again, I I think you know I could go back to them and say, okay, yeah, I, and I would be interested to see what is your evidence based literature that leads you to this conclusion. Like that doesn't make any damn sense. Yeah. Um, would be you know kind of the whole thing that's out there but um you know that's that is kind of that standard statement that says we made the decision go away you're screwed um <laughs> and that, that's <laughs> so yeah so take it take it to another level and and i i, I think trying the 
you know, go back to the original diagnoses and, and, and put it through. You're well within the ICD guidelines to go there. All right. Okay. Last question. Um, uh, it's from Heather. Do you have experience with code 0420 or 0421T? I need to come up with RVUs to assign to the temporary code 0421T, which is transurethral water jet ablation of prostate, including control of postoperative bleeding, including ultrasound guidance, complete vasectomy, meiotomy, cystourethroscopy, urethral calibration and or uh, dilation and internal urethrotomy are included when performed. I see other health systems with a uh, definitive RVU number. Can you offer guidance on how to assign an RVU to this procedure? Okay. So, um, you know, the category three codes may or may not get an assignment of an RVU. Um, so CMS has the capability and they have in the, in fact, in the past assigned RVUs to codes. Um, now on the flip side, um, you don't necessarily have to have an RVU for coverage, right? So, um, and and I know that the 0421T is being covered by a number of different payers and, and by Medicare and um, with LCAs. So um, coverage um, is, is out there and that means there is a, an allowable, typically assigned if you've got routine coverage or at least a methodology to determine payment. Um, but as far as truly assigning an RVU, um, the best way to go about assigning an RVU to any service that does not have an RVU assigned to it is to go back and look at comparative procedures and what those work RVUs are. Um, so, uh, and I'm assuming you're really focused on the work RVU here more for production, but you, you know, pricing is kind of the same thing, which kind of translates back into a, to a, to a fee or a total RVU. Um, and same advice, go back and look at what is something similar. Um, is this roughly the same as a resume or is this closer in work effort and physician time to a TERP or, a um, a, uh, uh, a, a Eurolift or, you know, maybe it's even closer to a, to, to really looking at something a little bit different, like maybe a, a urethral dilation. But um, so th those are the questions you need to ask. Um, from what I see pricing wise um, and looking at this, um, you know, I, I, I brought up the first one first, the resume or the tuna or the tump. Um, those tend to look to be relatively similar on physician reimbursement when I see those come back. And I think those are being indexed fairly closely because of the fact that it really is um, similar to the to those therapies and that they're using um, uh, catheters to get to deliver energy specifically to the prostate uh, in one form or another. So um, that would be where I would start. But um, you know, if you're a larger group, you might want to look at, um, at a committee that deals with some of these things. I mean, we've got the same problem with robotic cystectomy right now. So 
trying to find those types of comparative codes and agreeing on a comparative code and a value adjustment, either up or down from that code, um, as, a, as an explanation, um, it can be either based on physician time or physician work effort overall and intensity, um, but that's where I would go. Ray, thoughts? No, I think that's good. Yep, I agree. All right, I don't have any other questions on that. Um, let's wrap it up there. Uh, final thoughts, Mark? Uh, let's see. We covered a lot of different stuff today on stuff, but I, you know, in the end, um, I guess you got two different things. Um, one, relative values are relative, right? So looking for relativity as you're going to establish relative values, um, go with what you know as the base um, and then pivot from there. Um, and then, you know, with a couple of the other things we ran up against, you know, go back to the interpretation of the guidelines, whether they're fair or not, take a look at those and apply those rules as best you can uh, for as far as coding uh, your CPT codes and coding for ICD-10. I think that's that's kind of that takeaway that <clears throat> we've got to come up with interpretations and move forward because uh, undecided is not the way it works. And then last, I would definitely say is keep the questions coming into the to the community. Um, these are great questions. Um, it does show everybody's you know, pretty educated. We're going into the nuance of all this. So it's it's great to have these things come in and those discussions are, are wonderful to see and participate in. Agreed. Ray, your thoughts? Two thoughts. First, yes, it is exciting to see more and more understanding of the rules by the, the coding community and the providers because that's what it takes is understanding the basic concepts rather than memorizing the rules. And the second thought is, when you're dealing with a payer, yes, we do want to be accurate with our coding, but remember the payers have the final say of what they will pay for. So in the end, they're the ones that tell you, well, they will pay for a specific procedure or service and they may not tell you directly maybe indirectly but keep fishing till you find out what they do what their rules are maybe different from medicare yeah I, i'm gonna pile on to that one other thing is um Payers don't always make rules consistent with their own rules or decisions based <laughs> consistent on rules so um, you know, definitely there are times when you expand what you're going to do to try and figure out what everything is. But there are also times when you just got to go up the, the appeal chain. You got to go after them. Um, you know, we've seen a number of crazy decisions come from insurance companies. And, you know, they're blanket statements that say, you know, we used all the literature, blah, blah, blah. You know, I I would be I will tell you that I've met plenty of the payer folks that don't even know how to read medical literature. So um, don't be afraid to push back and keep going up. And if you need a peer to peer, go all the way to the peer to peer. 
Wait a minute. Are you telling folks that payers may not know the rules and may not abide by their own rules? You know I am. <laughs> good. All right. All right. Very good. Well, we'll end it on that thought. Ray, take us out. Happy coding. Thank you for listening to the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast, where we help urologists and their staff maximize income and efficiencies so there's time and energy for patient care and a happy life. Special thanks to Carl Painter for the music today. You can find his music on Spotify under his record label, The Juice Roots.